Hey, 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 everybody. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Talk Cash or Don't Speak podcast. I'm your host, John Odebo, also known as Johnny Debs. Hope you're ready for today's episode. Let's get it. People, you are tuned into a rant-style personal finance podcast. If you're looking for someone to get in your face about personal finance and investing topics, I'm definitely your guy. The motto on this show is talk cash or don't speak. What's going on, everybody? We got a great episode in store for you this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Talk Cash or Don't Speak podcast. And today, we have as a guest Joe Marshall, who's a financial advisor out of Santa Barbara, California. And he uh, initially kind of came onto my radar. We started talking a little bit, but I liked his background. He was making posts about personal finance on uh, LinkedIn and obviously caught my attention because <laughs> there's not much else good going on on LinkedIn. But uh, the the specificity of the advice that he was giving and the things to look out for were super relevant to my day-to-day and the things that I can relate to, uh, working in tech and um, also being in sales, having like a commission job and, and just having some flexibility and how much you're, not flexibility, but some variance in how much you're going to make throughout the year. So those are things that stood out. And then also when you start talking about things like RSUs, restricted stock units or things that or our shares of stock that companies give out. And there's also ISOs, there's vesting. Some of the terms you'll hear this episode, like um, vesting is basically the amount of time your stock or the shares that they give you need to sit before you can do anything with them. So if you have like a four-year vesting schedule, let's say you get 100 shares over four years. So you will have... 25 shares a year roughly because that's how it averages out. Normally, they're going to start vesting after that first year. You'll get like 25. And then from there, again, this is typical quarterly, you'll get an allotment. So you, so the next year, your 25 will be split into four quarters. And then so what you'll be getting like six, one quarter, you'll get seven, but you'll get six every quarter. And that's the vesting schedule. That's what that's referred to as. When you actually go to do anything with these stocks, like sell them, then that is called exercising the stock options. So I'm just trying to give some background on some of the terms that we'll we'll use in this interview. But in general, I think this is a great episode to tune into if your company gives you equity. And if your company doesn't give you equity, I still think you should listen because I think you should be asking your company for equity. Now, when they say, oh, we don't do that, push back. Depending on the market you're in, depending on how well your company's doing, you might be missing out on a lot of upside and uh, potential to make money, right? These shares are how you build wealth. You get cash, you spend cash. If you get stock or shares of stock and you hold on to it, that is doing a lot of the work that we're preaching on here of investing your money for you already. Then you can decide whether you need the cash and you you sell the shares or whether you get and hold the shares. And then next thing you know, you work at a company for five years, 10 years, 
you leave that company and you have a nice little nest egg. You might have $20,000, $30,000, $100,000 sitting around of that company's stock. I think for some people early in their careers or for some people that are really getting equity, that's a, that's a really crazy thought to think about. A lot of factors go into whether you should sell the stock or not, and that's what Joe and I will cover today. So that's not what the whole episode is about. In general, we give some, he gives some really good personal finance tips. We talk about diversification, whether you sell, whether you hold on to the shares, and if your company's going public or if it is already public or if it's private, these are all really unique situations here. If it's private, you, don't, you might be getting equity still. If you work for a private company, you can still get equity in shares, but you just don't really know what the price for those shares is. They'll give you a strike price, which is like roughly what the shares are worth. But if no one will buy it for that strike price, it's a very uh, complex situation there, right? If you have a stock and shares of something that are $100 a share, but it's not public, you can't see what it's worth consistently. So what you'll have to do is go to a private market, and, and there are lots of private markets there, or you want a IPO, which is an initial public offering to happen, so that there is a price associated on the public market with those private shares that you have. So those are those are some things to keep in mind here, but I think you should be asking for stock. You should be asking for equity in your company. If you believe in the company, you should ask for equity. When you're going for job interviews, you need to be asking do you guys offer equity to employees? A lot of the time, you don't ask, you don't get. No asky, no getty, all right? And uh, and they're kind of relying on ignorance on your part or just anybody interviewing's part to not ask. Or did you know you could negotiate? A company's more likely to give away equity than they are maybe like five to $10,000 extra on your annual salary because these roles probably have like a budgeted salary range. But when it comes to stock, they can be a little more liberal on how they're giving that out because, again, you're not exercising it all necessarily right away and they want you to hold it because then it's staying held within the company. But then it becomes like outstanding shares, right? So these are things to think about. I, I highly recommend you start looking at your benefits plan a little closer and if you're not getting equity, you should try to ask for it. A lot of my listeners, myself, a lot of my friends all work in tech, right? So it's almost a, a regular question like, oh, that's a hot company to work for. Did you get equity? And uh, the last company I worked for actually didn't because when I asked, they're like, yeah, we have a stock purchase plan, but they it's only eligible for people who – they told me it's only eligible for salespeople who have hit quota. I look back on that and – you know, I, I tried to challenge them on that a little bit on like what other people like, is that just a sales thing? You know, what, what happens to like marketing who doesn't have a quota? What, do, what are the software developers getting? Right. But in general, just not a whole great experience working at that company in terms of the benefits package. That's why I was there for like 10 months and then left. Right. Benefits package, the pay, all that. It was just it was quite mid as as the Gen Zers are saying these days. And if you gave some equity. Well, that's additional compensation, and that's an extra reason for people to stay. So a lot of companies use RSUs. They'll just give random RSUs to top performers to keep them there because, again, if it vests over three years for you to see the full amount of that, that money, 
then you need to stay there that full time. Now, if they're talking about $10,000 over three years, that might not be enough to stop you from switching jobs because you're I would hope you're you're making like at least another like ten percent to twenty percent more on your salary, which could equate to like what five or ten k. You're covering a lot of that, but when you talk about giving like two hundred thousand dollars worth of shares that vest over a couple of years, you're gonna stay for that forty thousand dollars, right? Most likely, especially if the company's growing, that could be valued more. So these are things to think about, and if you are. If you have questions about like your company's stock purchase plan or RSUs, because these are all different, you know who to ask. Ping them over. I'll, uh, I'll try to help you understand or make sense of it or the more information. And then also Joe actually does this for a living, right? So his services aren't going to be free, but this is what he specializes in for the most part. Without further ado, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let us get to the episode here. But make sure, you know, right now is the time to pause and share this with a friend that you know works uh, in a situation where they're, they're getting equity or they could be getting equity. And uh, maybe it's another time to ask another friend like, hey, I know we talked about income and stuff like that to make sure we're kind of like on equal lengths or to understand we're being fit, paid fairly. But do you get equity too? Is that something I should be asking for at my company? Things to think about, people. Go share it with a friend right now. Go follow Talk Cash Pod at Talk Cash Pod on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok. Stay tuned. We're coming out with some fire episodes. I'm really excited for this one. I think it's very specific information. And then also we give a lot of broad information too that will just get your mind working. But we, I've got some exciting episodes lined up recently. Or yeah, recently. Next week, I'm going to do another solo. We're going to talk about um, some of the, the recent news here with the loan forgiveness and all that because I owe you guys a breakdown of that. Following that, we got we got some good guests. We got some juicy guests, guys, all right? So stay tuned in, follow, like, share, subscribe, Talk Cash Tuesdays, baby. You're rocking with Johnny and keep doing it. Thank you. Here's the episode. All right, I am happy to present Joe Marshall, our guest for the day, financial advisor out of California, Joe, I, uh, I'm really excited to talk with you and share some of the, the discussions we've been having with the audience here. I think Joe has a super unique background and f- because of that, kind of has a focused niche when it comes to financial advising. And uh, we'll get into that and talk to you guys about it, but uh, some exciting stuff to come. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Excited to chat with you today. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, So I, Joe and I kind of found each other through LinkedIn, but his his content is super uh, relevant and focused for a lot of the people in the tech industry. And so that's kind of, I mean, that's obviously the industry that I'm in. So uh, we kind of started talking and had some some great conversations around kind of specific information that can be useful to those in the tech industry. And then also just some general good financial guidance, right? Um, so Joe, I mean, I, I'd love to kind of just cover your background and, and how you got to financial advising. I say it's in a unique background, um, Joe went from finance to sales. Uh, t- tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so yeah, kind of an atypical journey. Um, try to go quickly, but it's still long. <laughs> so out of college, I worked in banking for a couple years. Hindsight was actually a really good job, but you know, when you're 23, 24, can't say I had the full insight into where I was working and what opportunities it would provide. Um, you know, 24, I want to be doing exciting things. And instead I'm running credit analysis for companies with a bunch of 50 year olds. 
And so long story short, I decided to quit my job. I'd, I'd saved up you know, enough cash, not a lot, but enough cash. And so I decided to quit and travel for a year, uh, primarily through Australia and South America. Fun. And uh, eventually, like most good things, had to come to an end because I ran out of money. So uh, after traveling for a year and seeing a lot of really cool places, still figured I hadn't found any place I liked more than Santa Barbara. Uh, so asked my best friend here, hey, what's the best company to work for? And he recommended Procore Technologies, um, which is software as a service for construction industry. And so I worked there for about four years, all in sales, working business development to account executive. And then I uh, really enjoyed my time there, but ultimately, I'm sure, John, you'll have some more questions we can interject, but I was trying to just give the highlights. Uh, yeah. I had the opportunity to go ahead and start uh, my current job uh, as a financial advisor with my business partner, Chris. Awesome. I love that. That is finance, <laughs> sales, back to finance. Um, looking, at, looking at it now, you say you kind of wish or realize you had a good job to start with. Uh, you were just kind of bored or what, what, what makes you say that now? And then like, do you think you, do you think you'd be doing really well in that role? Like how, how would that have changed your life a little bit here? Cause you've kind of gone to the entrepreneurial route. I'm curious if you thought that, I mean, you, you probably had that spirit in you. So very different yeah. route if you just stayed with the cushy job. Yeah. I don't know if I, if something I would want, wanted to do for a lifetime, but you know, yeah. at the time, I don't think I realized that it was a really good at least from a job security and pay standpoint, not that that's everything, but you know, if you work hard and move up, you're going to make pretty good money, never really be too concerned and, and do pretty well, you know, probably top 5% of income earners in the U S if not higher. Yep. Um, you know, for me, you know, coming out of college, you get the valedictorian or you get the, the graduation speech and they tell you to go change the world. And then I'm, crunching spreadsheets and I'm pretty much the youngest person in my office by 20, if not 30 years. So yeah. not the, you know, it's a very different work environment. Mm -hmm. And again, not as a bad thing. It gave me a lot of great skills, but not something I wanted to do forever. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Right. Uh, the feeling of fulfillment is kind of important. I think finding that balance between being practical and, and realizing life costs money <laughs> and then, and then also wanting fulfillment and, and to just kind of make a difference in the day to day. That's, that's a balance that's really hard to strike. And I think that's where people struggle with like their career decisions and, and everything there. Yeah. It, I, before that I briefly worked at another tech company here for about three months and they brought up, oh, I can't remember what the book was exactly, but, uh, they said that, you know, once kind of the basics are taken care of, like you have adequate pay for your job, mm -hmm. the three things most people want in a job are mastery, autonomy, and purpose. You know, you want to be able to start yeah. to master your craft, feel really good. Autonomy, you don't want to be micromanaged by your boss. And purpose, you, know, you want to feel like you're making a difference or working on something that matters. I, I, I like that. That's a really succinct way of putting it, but I, I, I totally agree with that there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then you kind of fell into software sales. H how long were you doing that? And, and give us a little bit of background on why you, you moved out of that. Yeah. So I, in total, I was there for about four, a little over four years, um, started in business development then helped build out the enterprise business development inside sales team, 
and then became mid-market sales for the last 15 months or so. So that opportunity kind of moved through a lot of the different areas of sales. Mm -hmm. And candidly, I really liked my time there. It was a great company, great product and fantastic people to work with, you know, with the caveat that, hey, I also don't think this is something I want to do for, for 30 years. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think any any people in software sales will probably resonate with a little bit of this, but, you know, it is tough starting each quarter over at zero. You know, hey, had a great last quarter, hit 150% of my number, and then that next day hits and you're back at zero and you got that, that pressure. Um, the other thing I will say for me personally, is I looked at who was ahead of me, you know, the, the, the kind of potential career routes you can go, you mm -hmm. can either go more the individual contributor route and move up to the enterprise space, or you can try to go to the management VP director level and kind of either way I looked at it, that wasn't something I extremely wanted for my life long-term yeah. You know, yes, the promotions came with more with more money, which is great, but they yeah. also came with what I saw, at least at my company, a lot more travel. Uh, and, yeah. And kind of a lot more stress. Mm -hmm. And you know, I didn't it's not that those are bad jobs. There's plenty of people I really like in those jobs, but it's just not something I wanted for me, especially because our travel was all over the United States. So it gotcha. wasn't like, hey, I'm I'm traveling 50 miles. It's yeah. 500 or 3000 miles. And you're on the road a lot. That's just not something that was attractive to me. So the way I looked at it was I'm really happy here mm -hmm. and it's providing for me the life that I want outside of work. Yeah. And I'm not getting crushed working 80 hour weeks. So I'm happy with it. But when the right opportunity comes up, I want to be willing to take advantage of that. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense there. And I, and for people who aren't as familiar with sales, I mean, you do the business development route. That's like maybe making anywhere from 40 to a hundred calls, depending on the company and, and the culture. So you get that, like, I wouldn't say grunt work, but that's, that's kind of like the entry level. The grind. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a big grind. It's, it's, it's hard work. And so then you move up to the account executive level and it's just meetings all day. Right. And, and if you're having the conversations with customers and then kind of moving up into mid-market, as Joe described, you're just moving into bigger customers, usually bigger deals, usually less customers too, or less, less volume. And, and so when you talk about moving up to the enterprise space, that's like, I think for the people that want to go the individual contributor route, for people who don't know about sales, I mean, you're making a good living, probably in the, in the multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars in that enterprise role. Of course, it's split between like commission and, and, and base. So you know, if you don't hit your number, then obviously it's not, you're not, you're not reaping all of those rewards. And, and I think the people in sales, obviously, you know, that's probably what most people want to get to when it comes to individual contributors. Otherwise, you go to management, less commission, more of a stable salary, more of a stable uh, income, probably in, in terms of projection. But then that is stacked with, I look at my manager's calendar, meetings all day long, like 9 a.m. till 5 p.m., right? And then at the end of the day, usually you're locking a couple extra hours to get your job done, whether that's work, <laughs> right? Exactly. Whether that's like reporting or getting back to your reps, supporting them with deals, emails, whatever it is. Right. So I do, I do see that as like, if you just want to make money, management is a tough route to justify. But when you talk about like going into the next phase of your life, uh, wanting a little bit more stability, having kids potentially, that does seem more uh, attractive and appealing to some than having to travel. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword and I can, and for people who are in sales, it's like, maybe they wanted to get out of it. Maybe they do, but people who don't know it all, 
you can, you can kind of feel pigeonholed into one or two routes. And, and when you're making that money, you're like, I don't want to go back to starting another career over. So you, you were waiting for the right opportunity. What was, what was that right opportunity? It's, it's you being an entrepreneur. Tell us, tell us more what this opportunity, how it presented itself. Yeah. So about three years to the date, uh, one of my really good friends and my, my business partner, Chris, uh, came to me. He had been working at a, an investment firm down in Orange County, California, had been working there for about, I don't know, seven, eight years. Long story short, he, he was ready to make a switch and go off on his own, um, be able to offer a little bit unique, a little more unique investment approach, offer a little bit more services, and, you know, also have the ability to create, you know, be an entrepreneur and create your own firm. Um, and we talked about partnering up for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, it's a lot easier to, and well, in my opinion, it's easier to start something with somebody else than just by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes, you sacrifice owner ownership, but it's pretty lonely trying to do something by yourself. So having somebody else to build the business. Yeah. Um, two, at Chris's last firm, there was no, he had no responsibilities for business development. And that's all I did for four years with sales. So he figured I could complement that skill set for him. Um, and yeah, I so said that that was probably the two biggest things is to kind of have the complementary skill set and you know not go it alone. Because you know, in our world, building a financial advising firm, there's so much back office and compliance, especially that first year. Yeah, you can you can spend your whole year just trying to get up and running without really bringing on any clients and making any money. Um, okay, so that makes sense. Me, yeah, yeah, and so for me, it was attractive because I had the finance background, or at least the analysis background from working in banking. Granted, it wasn't personal finance, but I figured you know this isn't rocket science. I I can. <laughs> I can, I can figure this out. I already have the, the, the analysis skills. I can learn this while also focusing on building out our book of business. Um, yeah. So we got started pretty much right as the pandemic started in March of 2020. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a tough time. Did, uh, that's, that's a tough time right there um, to, to be starting a business. And then just in, when it comes to wealth and, and talking about money and, and stuff like that too, it's like, People, people were struggling then. I mean, some people were, were doing great, right? With, with tech stocks and such, uh, I guess right after March, kind of when, it, yep. when the market started running. But, uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a tough time. So what kind, of, well, what kind of certifications did you even have to do to make that switch, right? You talked about some of the, the backend work and, and paperwork and such. Yeah, so for me, I had to get my Series 65, okay. which I think is the Uniform Investment Advisor License. Um, I probably butchering the name. Uh, yeah, so that's the, you know, there's different, there's different, if you look into it, there's a bunch of different series that you can get. Some people will get a seven and a 66. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided I'd rather take one test than two. So I just did sure. one for the 65. Oddly enough, I think I took the last test before, you know, cause you have to go take them in person. They're very serious. They have proctors, okay. you know, making sure nobody's cheating. So I think I took mine in February and they only do them every so often. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure like if I had, if I either hadn't taken it then or I hadn't passed it, it would have been months before I could have taken it again because nobody yeah. knew how to do that type of stuff. Who knew, at that who point. knew if they were scheduling them and then yeah. also being in person and, and everything. Yeah. So snuck it in the 
snuck it in barely. <laughs> awesome. So that got you. That got you there. You're landed. What's uh? And then for, for the people listening, what is the financial firms? It's tell us the name. Tell us where people can find you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we are Coastal Capital Advisors. Uh, we're out here in California. There's technically another one uh, with the same name. They're out in Louisiana. No relation. Hmm. Crossover. I yeah. Think, I think they're and who they focus on is uh, very different than us. Okay. Uh, so yeah, our website is www.coastalcapitaladvisors.com. Um, and, you know, probably, you know, our firm's taken a couple different routes as we try to, as we built out over these first two and a half years, but we really focus on tech professionals with equity compensation. I love that. Uh, and then on top of that, you're also posting actively on LinkedIn. Do you do other social media as well, or mainly just like LinkedIn? Pretty much LinkedIn and then a lot, pretty decent amount of email as well, email newsletters. So typically I do a a Saturday newsletter that's specifically focused on people with equity compensation. That's pretty new. Um, So, you know, had topics around your RSUs vesting, how much of your company stock should you hold? I think my most recent one on Saturday was thinking about your cash flow and- I really think that's your greatest superhero or superpower provided you use it correctly. Um, I'm talking through different strategies there. So yeah, just all things, but uh, equity comp focused. And then typically during the week, usually on Tuesdays, we're writing something a little bit more broad based, not necessarily, not necessarily equity comp focused. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, there's a lot of information on LinkedIn. If you guys like LinkedIn, go check them out on there, right? Go check Joe out on LinkedIn, but it sounds like there's no there's no downside to signing up for Coastal Capital Advisors newsletter and getting a Saturday uh, money email right in your inbox while you're while you're chilling over the weekend right there. So that's uh, that's you guys listening should go check them out there. Um, why did you focus on people in tech with equity? Like what's <laughs> what made that your your niche? Uh, it's actually funny. I was I was writing of a LinkedIn post that I'll post later this week on that exact topic. Um, you know, starting out, we were afraid to have one specialty and, and, and actually in a good way, actually in a good way, it worked out pretty well, but you know, you, you don't want to say no to anybody. Yeah. Which doesn't really work. Cause you kind of say no to everybody instead. Um, you know, there's so many financials about advisors out there. I think there's over 500,000 in the U S you know, and no we're competing with, <laughs> with firms like Morgan Stanley, Edward Jones, yeah, uh, people with, they'll spend more marketing in my zip code than I'll ever spend in my lifetime, right? <laughs> like, so I, I, you know, it's tough. So, you know, we were nervous, but also, you know, we didn't know who we liked doing work with. And so we took on some retirees, some business owners, some tech professionals. And what we learned over the course of the last two years is that we really do our best work with tech professionals and, there, and there's a couple of reasons why. One, most of the people we work with, and really it's more like millennial tech co- professionals, okay. late 20s to early 40s, okay. because we're in the same stage of life. My business partner and I are 32, both have families. We're, you know, we live in Southern California. We're trying to buy houses. Yeah. We're kind of in the same stage of life as most of our clients. You know, Yes, we do have some clients who are older, but the bulk of it is people kind of, call it 28 to 42, you know, 
navigating a similar life change where you're really starting to, Hey, we've started to make some good money. Mm-hmm. What is, how are we saving for retirement, but also buying a home, also yeah. saving up for kids' education, but also we want to have a lot of fun. You know, we want to travel and take trips and go out to dinner and all, all those things. Yeah. So you guys um, aren't the Dave Ramsey's of personal finance there saying, uh, saying that you have to save everything and there's no travel or anything like that. No, I mean, I, I will tell you if you're not, if you're spending, too, I will tell my clients if you're spending too much money, but Cause you know, we, we have a reason that sure we're, we're, we want to save and invest, you know, we don't want to blow it all, but I'm also more than happy to tell my clients, Hey, you can definitely go spend more. Like one of my favorite exercises I did with a client recently is a young couple, late, mid, late twenties. They want to save up for a sabbatical in 10 years. So they can take their kids, take a year off potentially with their kids. Yeah. And figure out how we're going to make that happen. Like that whole goal is to spend money, probably hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars in one year. There you go. Nice. Like that's, that's way more meaningful than having a little bit extra for retirement. Absolutely. Um, so that's reason one, we're almost same. We're very similar stage of life Two, already. Most of our friends are in tech. So <laughs> it just, we just like, that's everybody in our network kind of as it is. So we kind of got to use, uh, got used to that kind of closely related. I lived all of this, you yeah. know, I had to figure out what stock options were, what the taxes were, when you should buy, when you should hold, when you should sell. Yeah. Um, and made a lot of the mistakes along the way that I've seen people make. And now I want to help people avoid it. Um, and then kind of related to that point, maybe fourth and final, there's a lot of complexity for tech professionals with equity compensation. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the, how, how much you should hold taxes, I mean, kind of everything I was just saying, but there's so, there's so much complexity and, you know, by getting to know that really, really well, that gives us a specialty and expertise that your average financial advisor just isn't going to have. Awesome. I love that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, would you say that you are, do you, do you find yourself pushing people into, or not, I don't like the word pushing there, but, uh, urging people to check out tech companies if they're not in tech if and and not even necessarily sales, right? Like if someone's uh, in finance or if someone's an accountant, right? Uh, if someone is on any part of the business operations on the back end, are you, do you find yourself like an advocate of like, oh, you should check out these tech companies because people are getting this equity and then having to come to me for, for these types of issues, <laughs> money issues, right? More money, more problems. And uh, if you get into tech, potentially you have that problem. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a good problem to have. I mean, I think you see it across the board. There's a reason why so many people are going into tech and not that you're necessarily a computer programmer, software engineer, although I think that world, I mean, if I could go do it all over again, like I'd probably go, or if I could have, if I had a kid and tell him, I'd tell him to go look, learn how to code. Yeah. Um, there's so much money to be made if you're a halfway decent software engineer. Yeah. Um, and it's a really powerful tool and you don't even have to work for a tech company. You can go make your own SaaS make, yeah. company right there. Right. Like, but I found that tech companies pay a lot, pay really competitively, if not higher than most other firms, most other companies. Yeah. And two, the quality of life is extremely high. You know, it's, there's a reason why you see people at, you know, finance companies in New York who are working hundred hour weeks, 
you know, move over to tech because they have a chance to make maybe not the same income, but it's still a really strong income while working significantly less. Yeah. Um, and then you also, you know, if you work for the right company, you have the added upside of equity compensation. Sure. Where you'll see people go from having a couple hundred thousand dollars to a couple million dollars if they hit it right almost overnight. And now again, that's not everybody, but yeah. you get behind the right company. And that's certainly not out of the question. So I think it's the high earning potential. Yeah. Combined with really high quality of life. I mean, yeah, it makes it a no, in my opinion, a no brainer. <laughs> I, I agree with you there. I, I try to, I try to do the same. I try to advocate for the same insurance, drinking some of my own Kool-Aid, but for the reasons you just mentioned there, it's like, why wouldn't you, right? Like everybody should get in on this. Um, so you're seeing these people that are are getting equity, probably probably money like they've never seen before, right? Like if you're 24, even late 20s, even in your 30s, or if you make a late switch to tech, just because you're earning a salary, that's one thing, right? But who gets a lump sum of like $60,000 in restricted stock shares? And then they have to go and Google what the hell is a restricted stock share? And what do I do with it? How do I make money from this? Um I mean, what, what are like typical pitfalls that you are seeing people either fall into or that you were kind of like guiding and making sure that they're avoiding? Yeah. So there's probably two categories that I would say, are you, is your company uh, pre-IPO or is it already public? And then what are the equity that you have? Is it more stock options or is it more RSUs? Um we break, let's say that you're in a private company and all you have are stock options. We won't go into all the details on it because we'll get really technical and nobody will want to listen to this, but this is what I deal, deal with all day. Um, what the biggest mistakes I see if people have stock options, particularly if they're at a private company, is they're not aware of the total taxes, um, particularly if they have incentive stock options also called ISOs. Okay. Um, people will often do one big exercise all at once and they can get hit with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, or potentially if they have enough millions of dollars worth of taxes. And the problem is can't sell it. So if it's, so now you have to pay this tax bill and you have no way of paying it. Um, and I've seen it time and time again, some of the times we can work around it, especially if their company has since gone public. I've yet to see a situation where we, I, where you can't, but it can get really problematic. And sure. so if you are proactive, you can often eliminate that risk or severely reduce it, or at the very least be aware of it. And in that case, there are third parties you can go out to who will help you maybe exercise and pay for that tax. You're okay. going to pay for, you know, if your company goes public, you're going to pay for that, but there's different ways of reducing that risk. So that's the biggest thing I see. Okay. People not being aware of the total cost of the exercise and just taking a huge bloodbath in taxes. Um, right. And companies and the software that kind of support this aren't in the position to be helping people on that. Your company is not going to tell you what the taxes are going to be because yeah. that puts them at just massive amounts of liability. Absolutely. And so it, that is the biggest 
that is the biggest mistake I see right now. Yeah, that, that actually makes sense. And, and I mean, people just don't really think about taxes, right? Like uh, oftentimes I think people forget about that until tax season and then they put it away and then they bring out their folder and then they expect their accountant to do everything. But when you're talking about getting lump sums or, or RSUs or ISOs, you have to kind of plan in advance there, uh, especially if you're going to need some of that money later on in the year. Uh, <laughs> I, I definitely agree with that there. Um, any, anything else that you're seeing uh, through, through some of your sessions at all or any, any themes that are kind of coming up a lot? Yeah, a big one right now is how much people are holding on. So let's take the other side of the coin. We talked about private companies, people making you know, big decisions all at once and not really having a strategy. Other side of it is, let's say your company's public. I will see people where they have way too much tied in their single company stock. Mm. So, and, and they don't have a reason for it. I'm not necessarily yeah. against it, yeah. but they don't have a reason why. Um, so let's say they've been working at a company, they've acquired a lot of stock through RSUs and their employee stock purchase plan, the stock price has gone up, and now they're sitting on hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of company stock. And the rest of their investments are, let's just call it 200 grand. That's yeah. just way out of whack. Sure. I'm okay with it if in certain situations, AKA your goal is to make it really, really big. You're not just trying to retire and have a nice, comfortable life. You want to be like, you want to have a portfolio worth $20 million plus. You want to be the 1%. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that. Is that the right idea? Why are we doing that? And is there margin for error? If the stock drops 50%, are you still going to be okay? So we'll talk through some of those different scenarios and understand what our risk is. And if we're okay, I'm, I'm supportive of swinging for the fences mm -hmm. with the understanding that things can go really bad, really quick. <laughs> See yeah. all the tech stocks this year. Yeah. Um, you know, but if, if we're not, if that's an outsized risk and for most people it is, mm -hmm. okay, why are we holding that much? Yeah. What's a better level for us to get to and how are we going to get there? And what are the, are there going to be any taxes or costs to that? I, I absolutely love that point. I liked your post the other day on this same debate right here, but I think, I think the idea of diversification versus just kind of like putting all your eggs in one basket is, is a debate that could, could go on for hours. And I, I kind of, I'm, I, I'm kind of interested in your take there because I almost take the other route of diversification. And so I've sold tech stock or uh, company stock in the past because I want that diversification. And I think that's like what they call like best practice sometimes in, in personal finance forums because you always point to like Enron or something. But you bring up a really good point. I am personally someone who is trying to get very, very rich. $20 million, I don't know if I can get that much, but why not? Let's go for the moon, right? Um, so explain or maybe elaborate a little bit more on like, Am I just hoping for my individual company to just take off and, and moon? Like if they're already public, should I maybe be trying to find the next uh, company? Is that why a company, someone should go try to find like all these IPOs or um, what, what's kind of the thought process behind that? Yeah. So I think, I think one, you have to feel really good about the company you work for. 
I can't say that without caveat. People are wrong about their company all the time. I had a, a really good friend who worked at Uber. And if you've seen Uber stock, it's I'm as last time I checked, it's still below IPO price. Yeah. So you can be wrong on that all the time. But let's say you've looked at the data, you feel good about the C-suite, you feel good about the trajectory, and you think you're enjoying working there and you feel good about where you're going. And let's say you're acquiring big amounts of RSUs, you're maxing out your employee stock purchase plan, and you want it, you know, and you've looked at the risks and you're okay with it. Yeah. That could be one of the best ways of you hitting it big. Okay. Now, again, you have to have enough equity compensation. If you're only getting $10,000 of RSUs a year, yeah, that company is going to have to 100x for you to hit it big. Okay. That's not super realistic. Okay. On the other it. hand, there's, I, I looked at somebody uh, today, one of my meetings for tomorrow, they're a software engineer at a big company. They're being paid very well. He's vesting probably $400,000 worth of RSUs a year. So yeah, if, if that oh, company man. doubles or triples, yeah, like, that, that yeah. flips really quickly, really fast. So it, it does demand, you, you do have to have meaningful participation. Okay. One share, let's just take an extreme example. You have one share that's worth a dollar and it goes to a hundred. Yeah. You only, you only made $99. You got to have a lot of shares for it to matter. And that's where I've seen people start to move towards smaller companies after they've been maybe a part of a bigger successful company, yeah. they'll transition and, and move to a smaller company, maybe take a bigger position to get more equity and try to hit, hit it bigger. Because yes, to you, as what you said, John, diversification is, is, is an often a best practice, but Jeff Bezos wouldn't be where he is. Right. 100%. Elon Musk wouldn't be where he's at. Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't be where they're at if they were selling their company stock every time they got it. They yeah. held on, and that's why they're the richest people in the world. I, I, I like that. I agree. I think, uh, I think what I was looking for there is where you're like, it depends on how much equity you're getting. And I think that's such a valuable point. Maybe I just haven't seen that type of equity yet where I'm like, I'm going to ride this to my retirement plan right here. Um, but like, so you bring up an interesting point. This is all a personal observation. Yeah. I don't know what the data would say behind it. I find that sales, because they're more typically highly compensated than other roles, sales is, from my experience, has typically gotten less equity than other, other positions, uh, marketing, software engineering, product marketing. So I think it depends on the position. Obviously, if you're early in sales, you know, you're one of the first AE hires, you're going to yeah. get more equity. But if yeah. you're kind of later at an established company, you're not going to typically get as I haven't seen too many sales reps getting that really, really, really meaningful equity. Thank you. Okay. That is, that makes me feel better there and, and makes me feel calm. So you're a bit like a therapist there working with people through their goals bit. and such. Yeah. So when we were talking the other day, that's like the first time it really clicked to me. Like I just always like talking about money, but when we were talking, I'm like, wow, when you're doing financial advising, or consulting people on their day-to-day, -day, you're kind of a little bit like a therapist, but for their money, but but really not even necessarily money-related. You work on their goals and you're asking them broad questions about like, what do you want, right? Kids, marriage, rich, comfortable, whatever. Where do you want to live? And then you can just help them on the back end get to that money-wise or, or whether it's a certain uh, number they need or a certain amount of cash flow they need. So like, 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of interesting there. What do you, what has your experience been around that? Yeah, I think a couple thoughts. One, you know, like what we do isn't rocket science. Like you can Google, Google has every answer you could possibly want. Yeah. But the problem is there's so much information. You, you'll go crazy trying to look, learn it all, or at least for most people, you know, and, and most people would rather spend their free time not researching tax strategies. Yeah. They'd rather go out for a beer, play with their kids or watch Netflix. Um, so, so it's really helping people synthesize all the information. And like you said, you know, help them work towards their goals. Yeah. So, you know, that's probably the biggest thing I'm working with people right now outside of their equity compensation. It's how do we make sure you're saving, spending and investing to reach your dreams? And, you know, depending on the situation, it can be very different. You know, somebody who's 45 and about to put kids in college, but also yeah. thinking about it. About retiring is going to be saving and investing very differently than somebody who's 30, just got married and is looking to buy their house for the first time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if it's just, well, I'm in Southern California, but a lot of our, a lot of people we work with live in very high cost of living states, <laughs> sure. um, Colorado, California, New York, where maybe that's a, a lot tech of people, thing too. Yeah, it is a tech thing. And you know, at least in California, like it's not unrealistic for people to have a million dollar first time house. Yeah. Um, where I, where I live in Santa Barbara, I uh, don't even think about anything under a million. Um, so, you know, and at that point, if you're doing the traditional 20% down, you're looking at a 200 grand down payment before you even think about closing costs, fees, taxes, et cetera. And so if that's something that's really important to somebody, well, then we should be thinking about your saving and investing a little bit differently than somebody who's just focused on maxing out retirement accounts. You know, there's a lot of personal finance, uh, one size fits all approach. Like a lot of people are just gonna say, max out your retirement accounts before you do anything else. Yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I've, uh, we have a client who, we have a couple of clients actually where they've been saving so well in their retirement accounts. They have hundreds of thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. but they're so they're they're not close to buying a house because all their money is locked away in, in vehicles they can't touch. They're not liquid, right? Yeah. Exactly. So for them, like I like them to buy a house before they're 45. So against, you know, maybe Dave Ramsey or some other uh popular people, we might actually reduce their 401ks. We still want them to get their company match. Yeah. And we might focus all on building up money in, in in buckets of money that they can touch, whether that's a savings account or a brokerage account kind of depends on the timeline of them looking to buy a house. Yeah. So for them, you know, Hey, let's take advantage of that. Let's start to build towards actually what's important to you too. Um, you know, another one will be if people have an employee stock purchase plan, making sure that like, Hey, make sure you're maximizing that, especially if it comes well, really only if it comes with a discount. Yeah. You know, a lot of companies you'll see that, Hey, it's 15% off of, either the beginning point or the end point. So you're, you're guaranteed at least a 15% return. Yeah. Why are you putting your money in a broke, you know, why are you putting your money in a brokerage account if you're not maxing out that employee stock purchase plan? Yeah. Um, I say it all the time, 15% gains overnight guaranteed. Where else can you get that? Right. Like, and, and, and you can sell and it. It's a minimum. Yeah. It's a minimum of 15% because 
a lot of times they'll look at one of two points, the beginning point and the ending point. Sure. And you get the lower of the two. So let's just say take, take company XYZ and let's this is a very theoretical example. Okay. Um, but let's say it at the beginning of the six months, it was at a hundred dollars a share. And in six months, the company did really well, the economy is looking good, and now it's at 150 bucks a share. Yeah. You get it for 15% off of the hundred bucks a share mark. So you're getting a stock that's at 150 bucks mm -hmm. for $85. Yeah. Like we should be taking advantage of that all day. Yeah. Uh, and that, now again, check your plan. Not everyone is that way, but a lot yeah. of them for tech companies are. And like, that's a feature that if we can, we should be maximizing that before anything else. Well, not be depending on the goals, but a lot of times we want to be maxing that out. <laughs> Absolutely. And and the nice thing for people that are listening that are not in tech, don't feel left out. If your company is public, there's a very good chance they have a stock yes. purchase plan. ESPP, uh, also employee stock purchase plan. There are other names for it too, but you can probably, uh, I think they have like buyback programs and such like that too, but um, you can probably find a way to buy some company stock. The discount matters, obviously, right? But even if you're not you, I'm sure there's some reason or uh, some incentive that your company will give you to buy some stock. It's it's it behooves them and it keeps you around and it makes you feel uh, more entitled, not entitled, I guess, but more fulfilled with your job and more connected to your company. So I, I think if you work for a publicly traded company, you need to look into potentially getting a stock plan or maybe you go recommended if they don't have that now too. Like um, I would love to work for a company sometime and be like, well, actually I was going to do it at, at Okta, but like try to like be the ambassador for like benefits program or something like that. One thing I want to push for now is like a, a fitness or a wellness program there because like getting 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or 50 bucks a, year, a month, whatever it is. But like, I don't know, I'm super passionate about fitness. And if you can put financial uh, incentives and fitness together, then I'm all for that. But yeah. Yeah. And there in every company, you know, has different, you really need to understand your benefits because that's something I see people not take advantage of. You know, if depending on your health plan, can you be taking advantage of an a HSA or an FSA? Mm, great point. They're both no brainers because you're going to spend something on health expenses, contacts, glasses, sunscreen. I mean, the, even if it's a 500 bucks a year, there's probably a tax benefit to taking advantage of, of one of those programs. Yeah. Um, some companies like Okta offer, uh, an after-tax 401k for high earners that can make a lot of sense. So there's all these different benefits. Yeah. And a lot of times people aren't taking advantage of everything their company offers. Absolutely. And I think, I think we just nailed it, right? Like it, it's, it's personal. That's what they call it. Personal finance. You got to map out your goals. And that's one of the benefits of working with a financial advisor. They will not give you one size fits all advice like Google. They can customize a plan directly to your life. And then next thing you know, you just do what Joe tells you. Is that, is that how it works when you work with customers? Are you just like, um, let's set your goal. Let's do some back and forth. And then eventually I'll just tell you where to put your money in terms of like vehicles or. Yeah. So it depends. I mean, we, we have clients, we kind of have two types of clients, one who hire us for everything, both financial planning and investing. And we have some clients who hire us just for the advice side, just for the, just for the planning side. They either, they, they typically want to manage their investments themselves. Okay. And that's totally okay. Um, there's times when our investment philosophy doesn't match with what people are looking for, mm. but they still want the expertise on the advice side. Um, 
So for us, we'll start, you know, I kind of think of it in three phases, you know, when people, so first is when people are evaluating us as a firm, yeah. we do an initial 25 minute call. Are you a fit? Um, basically are what you're looking for match our expertise mm-hmm. and understanding the pricing, making sure that, you know, you think that's at least in the realm of what you'd be okay paying for. Um, if not, that's totally okay. I'll give people recommendations of what might be a better fit for them. Okay. Um, nice. And, you know, the way I like to think of it is like, you want to make sure you're going the right place. If you need a, a foot surgeon, you don't want to go to a heart doctor. There's different expertises. Yeah. And then uh, from there, I'll get some data on my clients or on the prospects, try to understand their equity compensation, their tax picture, their other investments, a um, couple other documents. And then we'll have about an hour long strategy session where we'll talk through, you know, this isn't necessarily the final be all end all recommendation. Yeah. Here's some initial observations and findings and things that we can work on out of the gate. Okay. From there, I step aside and say, hey, take some time to think over this. And, you know, if, if not, no, hard, no harm, no foul. Wish you the best of luck. If not, let's look to work together. Um, and then from there, we go into implementation, typically three to six months, where we're trying to hit all the big items. Okay. You know, implementing investment recommendations, exercising stock options, selling stock, whatever it is, that's the hard part with implementation. Yeah. Everybody looks so completely different, but it's typically how do we take care of the big ones? Um, Get them and then, right. And then, yeah, like let's make sure, yeah, we're making, and, and the time typically it'll be about once a month, but I have clients who leave a company and they have 90 days to exercise stock options. We're going to probably meet more than three times in three months. We're probably going to meet every week for two months to figure out everything we need to do. So it can be really intensive up front, but we have to, like we're working against a deadline. Um, And then when we, you know, once kind of people transition through implementation, we have kind of a yearly flow we go through meeting with clients twice a year, beginning of the year to kind of plan out the year towards the end of the year to kind of make any last end moves. And then a lot of updates in between on different areas like estate planning, taxes, uh, insurance, investments, kind of covering all the areas of financial planning. Okay, awesome. That's super helpful to understand what uh, what it looks like in building out these programs. Um, when you go about like pricing, then is it typically like flat fee? Is it monthly? Is it uh, percentage of of net worth? Like how 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 does you even go about pricing your services? Yeah. You know, this is something that's always evolving, um, you know, pretty simply for clients where we manage their money. If they have over $250,000 of investments. We charge a percentage of assets under management. Okay. Um, and, you know, the more we manage, the lower that percentage is over time. Oh, cool. Uh, okay. But, and then financial planning is included. Right. Uh, if we If we don't manage any money, we charge a quarterly financial planning fee. Um, okay. Ranges from anywhere from $300 a month to $800 a month okay. um, is the way I think about it. But we do it quarterly. And then if you're under $250,000, it's kind of a blend of the two. Some assets under management, some financial planning fee. Okay. Awesome. I uh, I mean, to me, that's an investment, right? Like you're, you're, you're paying that fee as an investment. I pay for people to mow my yard. For example, yeah. because I get time. I don't. I, I hate to compare you to uh, like a lawnmower service, but I'm getting. I'm doing to get time back in my day, and exactly. and you said it right. Like not everybody wants to be doing tax strategies. 
Um, not everybody is crazy like that. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I'm really clear with people like, Hey, I don't know if this benefits you. Um, like I had somebody last week, I think there's a ton of, uh, there's a ton of financial planning side we can help them with. Yeah. I don't think they're right for our investment services. Hmm. Really transparent. Other people, Hey, I don't think it makes sense for you to pay us a minimum of $300 a month. There's not enough complexity. Here's the things I would do. Yeah. Let's talk. But at some point, most people kind of hit this complexity level where they're feeling overwhelmed and the numbers become big enough that you don't want to mess it up. Yeah. I and mean, there's people where if I had worked with them a year or two earlier, I probably could have saved them $40,000 in taxes. That pays for um, my fees yeah. for a long, 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 long time. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that right there. Yeah. And, and, and the goal, especially if you're listening to this podcast, if you're a talk casher, my, my listeners are trying to get their money up. All right. So yep. the number is going to get high and, and you're going to get overwhelmed, right? Most likely. I know I, part of adulting is just getting overwhelmed with crap. That's what I'm starting to realize. <laughs> but yeah. It doesn't typically get easier. That's what I say all the time. I'm like, oh my God, you got to build the habits now, right? Like that's why I'm like, I have to get my workouts in or I find a time throughout the week because responsibilities, all this, everything builds up and it gets harder and harder to do. So you got to, and then, and money is just like that too. build the habits. So that when it gets more complicated, you have the habits built into like your routine, your system already putting 10% away, right. Or, or contributing to that ESPP 15%, you know, peace of mind, no matter what 15% is invested. If I have a bad year, I don't even see 15% and it's invested. That's kind yeah. of like my peace of mind there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, not to promote my own newsletter, but I, I think of, especially if you're on the younger side, like, you know, once you, the moves you make now, if you nail it, you set yourself up for years to come. Like, I really think of your cash flow as your superpower and use correctly. You know, you set the base now, you're, you're going to be set for years to come. But if you don't, you're going to play catch up in your 40s and 50s. Yeah. And, you can still make it happen, but I think there's a way to have a really fun time while also saving a lot and setting yourself up. That's the motto right there. I love that. And what did you say the other day? Yeah, the the, the planning ahead and versus working working out your past there or fixing your past. Yep, um, <laughs> it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to plan ahead than it is to try to fix it later. I think I think that's the way to go. And then when you're working with millennials too, for the most part, there's nothing against being like 50, but it, it, you have a very intensive program of your 15. You're just trying to get your money right at 40. I mean, 10 years is powerful. Uh, and then, and then if you're twenties, you know, you have all the time in the world, you have all the options out there. It's, it's actually funny. Like, you know, we use software to run projections and they'll, that no matter what I say, they're going to give me what they think the numbers are going to be when people are in their sixties. And for people who are saving a healthy amount, yeah, I don't even bother showing in the projections because it's basically broken. It's it shows that people are going to have 30, 40, 50 million dollars. And it's like. That's not super helpful. You know, that's not doesn't like, yeah, it doesn't really help because it, it's just too big of a number to fathom when you're at, you know, the hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So but it, it's not out of the realm of possibility for people who plan and, and invest really well. That compounding effect, baby. Uh, my final question here is like when someone signs up for your service, are they typically staying and working with just you or just your partner, Chris, 
or are they getting like the joint package? Do you guys kind of divide and conquer? How, how does that work there? Yeah. So uh, for people who sign up, they're mostly going to work, you know, depends on who they want to want to work with. We each have our own clients that we work with. Okay. Chris handles all of our clients' investments. He has his CFA, which is kind of like a PhD in investing. Uh, so he handles all the investments for our clients. Um, I handle a lot of our marketing, our business development, and then all the planning for my own book of clients. Okay. Awesome. Hey, well, Joe, this was great. I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, I, I, I see the value in your services. I think, I don't know if it's right for me just because I really like doing this stuff, but at the same time, I'm getting to the point where I'm kind of overwhelmed and uh, I, I think there's definitely value there. I think uh, the listeners should give it a shot, right? Like, especially with that 25 minute consult, I just signed up for your newsletter while we were on this call here. So I'm looking forward to getting that. Uh, I love a little Saturday morning. Is it always Saturday morning? Yeah. Uh, though my goal is every Saturday at 10:30 AM Pacific time. So whatever time's on your end, probably come out a little later, but uh, yeah, I try to write pretty casual some topics you probably won't find interesting, but I guarantee every <laughs> once in a while, something will apply to you. <laughs> awesome. Okay, cool. Well, everybody go check it out. Coastalcapitaladvisors.com. And then uh, also you can just look him up on LinkedIn, Joe Marshall, and uh, start getting some free wisdom there. But I, uh, I'll, I'll keep the people updated on how that newsletter is, but they should go sign up for themselves. Thanks so awesome. much for coming on, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. This is great.